Partially Examined Life precognitions introduce philosophical topics for upcoming episodes to give you a few weeks to do the reading yourself. They also serve as quick, standalone summaries of the work. You can read more about these topics, get the works we cover, and listen to Partially Examined Life conversations at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Lintenmeyer introducing Carl Jasper's essay, On My Philosophy, from 1941. Carl Jaspers was one of the fathers of German existentialism. He was an older colleague and friend of Heidegger's, and some of the content of Heidegger's Being in Time was written in direct reaction to Jaspers' ideas. Jaspers introduced the term existenz and gave us the picture of existentialism as prefigured by Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, whose important similarities Jaspers thought outweighed their differences. Where Camus and Sartre are atheist existentialists, and Buber is an explicitly religious existentialist, Jaspers presents us with a middle path— affirming along with Kant that any statements about the existence or non-existence of God are really unwarranted, but also stressing the importance of the question itself to human life. Is there some part of reality that transcends the immediate data of our senses, and that which science investigates? Jespers was born in 1883 and started his career as a scientist, working in a psychiatric hospital and then as a psychology teacher, focusing his studies on mental illness. In the beginning of On My Philosophy, he describes how this work gave him high standards of rigor which were not satisfied in the philosophy courses he took, which he saw as more often than not putting forth scientific-sounding claims with dubious grounding. However, he also saw a tendency in scientists, and really in everyone, to assert essentially philosophical propositions and then pretend that these were somehow scientifically grounded. One of the key points argued in this essay is that the scientific worldview is not itself a conclusion of scientific work. Sure, you need to do science to learn its methods, to really internalize them and see their value. But the certainty with which they are wielded far oversteps the finding of particular sciences. Science reveals facts in a particular domain, and its results are always hypothetical. The finding holds contingent upon the assumptions of the investigation being true. But this tentative, circumspect view of truth isn't enough for us to actually live on. And whatever our temperament, we do, and we should, make a leap— affirm a world view, have convictions, not as unexamined tenets of faith, but as something lived, something that gives meaning to our activities. Unlike for Sartre or Camus, this can't just be something you invent or choose without external influence, but represents a leap towards something you take to be real, to be objective relative to where you're at, something that transcends you. Just like Kant defined freedom as following the dictates of your reason, and for Socrates, freedom meant obeying the divine voice that told him to philosophize, for Jaspers, real freedom is a leap toward the transcendent that reveals itself to you in your most inspired moments, even though you can't prove what you've discovered to others, and can likely only explain it to them with great difficulty. This conviction about personal self-development is reflected in the type of therapy Jaspers developed, which he calls existence clarification, which is an outline of the potentialities of the soul, which holds a mirror up to man to show him what he can be, what he can achieve, and how far he can go. This line of inquiry led him, at age 38, to accept a professorship in philosophy, which occupied the rest of his career. After the first brief autobiographical section of the essay, the section, Making Tradition Our Own, is about our relationship to philosophical history. He says that, our questions and answers are in part determined by the historical tradition in which we find ourselves, and that we apprehend truth from our own source within the historical tradition. So we study philosophy to connect to old thoughts, to perennial truths, but we have to be careful, active, historically aware readers to translate these ancient insights into things that our minds, with our current ways of thinking, can really internalize. 
You have to care about what you're reading. You have to actually try to live the philosophical insights in question to really get it. Great philosophy always stems from intensely personal experience, and realizing that requires being similarly conscious today, which he calls encountering thought at its source. He says that, My own being can be judged by the depths I reach in making these historical origins my own. The third section of the essay is entitled, Drives to the Basic Questions, and he describes philosophical inquiry as the quintessential human activity. He says, Philosophic meditation is an accomplishment by which I attain being and my own self. While science is concerned with finite purposes, with specific practical results, philosophizing is the activity of thought itself by which the essence of man in its entirety is realized by the individual man. This activity originates from life in the depths, where it touches eternity inside time. So that's the style of the essay. He throws out terms like transcendence, existence, and here, touching eternity inside time. And because of the nature of encountering thought directly at the source, he can't just tell you what these terms mean, but can only characterize them indirectly. The only way to really know what he's talking about is to follow him down his road to philosophy. He puts forth some fundamental questions for the present era that he thinks come out of the attempt to philosophize, in light of the history of philosophy, in particular Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, whom he thinks had a seriously disruptive influence on the generally dogmatic history of philosophy that came before. These questions are first, what is science? He ultimately thinks that the sciences should be employed as tools of philosophy. A philosopher ignorant of science is going to believe a lot of foolish things, but the activity of philosophy itself is wholly different than what science does or can do. His second question is, how is communication possible? Given that he thinks philosophical insights about the transcendent can't really be put in words, what keeps them from just slipping through your hands and not having any effect on your life at all? The answer is honest, close communication with another person. Though you shouldn't expect to be able to simply codify and publish your philosophy without being widely misunderstood, you can, he thinks, engage in extended conversation and so share your enlightenment with another person, and he thinks this is an essential ingredient in self-actualization. The third question is, what is truth? Which amounts to asking what it is that philosophy can be looking for that supposedly goes beyond the mere correctness of good science. He stresses that we need to retain very high critical standards, a keen intellectual conscience, so this is not a matter of jumping away from objectivity and towards feeling or the irrational, but one of the things that our faculty of reason discovers in trying to think at the limits of the thinkable is that there are limits to what we can clearly understand, what we can know in any strict sense. He calls this horizon that frames any particular inquiry the encompassing, and takes it as his primary goal in philosophy to outline the ways in which we interact with it. He calls these the modes of the encompassing. These modes include both transcendent aspects of the world and of myself, the elements that escape any specific investigation. The prime example of a transcendent quality of myself is my free will. Science can't prove you're free, and in fact, tends to offer considerations against this freedom. But really, you have to live as if you really, in truth, are free. So the truth of our own freedom is one of the kinds of truth that we need, that our integrity demands that we embrace, but which inquiry can't conclusively demonstrate. He similarly views the question, does the transcendent exist, which he sometimes phrases as, does God exist, though he would stress that he's not talking about the specific Christian God with all that entails. The encompassing, taken as how the world transcends our experiences, is something he thinks we have to believe in to live meaningfully. But if you ask, well, what proposition do you have to assent to here? He'd say you're misunderstanding, that God or transcendence or the encompassing is not the kind of thing amenable to descriptive propositions, which you could then write down and preach and demand that other people believe. It's about you having an experience, an insight, 
that you can certainly try to describe to us or try to lead us to have similar insights and experiences by presenting yourself as an example to follow, but you can't make it into a dogma. His last two questions are, what is man and what is transcendence, which I've already covered in trying to discuss truth here. He says, becoming aware of man's being means becoming aware of being as a whole. Just as for Heidegger, Jaspers thinks that we often encounter and study and think about individual beings, but never being with a capital B. He also says, This being itself, which we feel as indicated at the limits, and which therefore is the last thing we reach through questioning from our situation, is in itself the first. It is not made by us, it is not interpretation, and it is not an object. Rather, it itself brings forth our questioning and permits no rest. In other words, being, the encompassing, is transcendent. Where Heidegger called man Dasein, which is the one being whose own being is an issue for it, Jaspers uses the term existence, which he describes as the encompassing in the sense of a fundamental origin, the condition of selfhood without which all the vastness of being becomes a desert. Existence is our existential need to assert ourselves as something in particular, and in so doing to live according to a philosophical worldview that is, again, informed by science and logic and what your understanding tells you, but necessarily goes beyond the justifications that those things provide. In the final section on the transcendent, he clarifies what he takes to be the relationship between philosophy and religion. He says, To remain truthful, religion needs the conscience of philosophy. To retain a significant content, philosophy needs the substance of religion. Religion is all about trying to experience and communicate transcendence. When religion thinks it's codified transcendence and starts a sect around it, a mistake has been made. And he thinks that the worst part of this is claiming exclusivity, that your revelation is the only way to God. At the same time, he says that religion is the reality to which philosophy owes its existence. If religion were not the life of mankind, there would be no philosophy either. He sees twin evils that philosophy is needed to help us avoid. On the one hand, dogmatic religious fanaticism. On the other, what we now call scientism, which is the wholesale rejection of transcendence and the pretense that science can reveal all the truth there is and all the truth that we need. Sometimes he calls this middle path between those errors philosophical faith. This is what Socrates, for one, was willing to die for. Mm -hmm. 